Well, we come tonight to the penultimate talk in the demonology series. Oh, oh that means there's only one more after this one, by the way. Sorry, sort of penultimate, <laughs> right? And uh, so, so we're coming very much to the end, and uh, we're dealing at this juncture with what the Bible teaches about the principalities and powers. We've seen that uh, the demons work in two different ways, or the aspect of uh, you know what the demons are up to. Uh, some of the demons or fallen angels are on what I've called personal demonization detachments, and uh, what they're doing is they're influencing people from the inside. They're able to get into people under certain circumstances, and uh, they need casting out. Uh, but we've seen that the rest of the demon forces, uh, or what the Bible calls the principalities and powers, uh, they work from the outside. And uh, they're not in people, they work from the outside. And we've seen the way that they're basically the push behind human affairs. We, we had a peek behind the cosmic curtain, didn't we? And we've seen that, that those spirits, that what they're working for is to manipulate and control people via wrong thinking, wrong ideas, and, uh, and temptation, and stuff like that. And we saw that they're basically all over the place. You know, they actually live in the atmosphere, they're in the air, they're in the sky. And, um, and we saw that with demons on personal demonization detachment, they get cast out because they're in people. But the principalities and powers, uh, we've been seeing that they need casting down or pulling down, not them personally, but the influence that they have on people. Just, just go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, a verse we've, we've been in, but we'll just read it again, get our, our bearings. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 10, <coughs> and uh, Paul says, For though we live in the world, we are not carrying out a worldly war. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy or pull down strongholds. We destroy arguments, every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And there we see uh, that the, the strongholds that these principalities and powers have, uh, are, they're arguments, uh, it's knowledge, it's ideas, it's uh, what we call the battle for the mind. And, uh, and in this talk we're turning directly to, right, okay, how do you pull down strongholds all right now when when Paul says here uh, you know we have divine power to pull down strongholds that 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 phrase pull down the Greek word is kathiresis and it simply means to cast down or to demolish and I, I think either last time or the time before I said that there's a pretty good chance that Paul was uh, thinking here of uh, sort of like the problem that the Romans had uh, with the pirates uh, on one of the important trade routes in Silesia um, the sort of Romans were finding that their shipping lane was continuously under threat because there was this like little peninsula you know loads of rocks and that and there was this massive fortress on the top of the cliff and uh, there were a load of pirates who had their base there and uh, sort of like the Roman galleons could be sailing through and then suddenly these, these bandits, these pirates, they sail out from behind the safety of the rock and uh, you know, sort of like sink the boats and they'd be back on land and up in the fortress and they were virtually untouchable because uh, you know, I mean, as soon as the Romans followed them uh, I mean, they were all up there in the fortress on top of the cliffs and I mean, the Romans couldn't get to them and uh, eventually that problem was solved under General Pompey who quite simply, he got loads and loads of galleons and soldiers and stuff like that there and they were able to cast ropes up and they literally they pulled this fortress down brick by brick and that was how they overcame the problem they simply demolished the fortress that the pirates were safe in they demolished it from 
underneath the cliff and just pulled it down. And that's the idea. And, um, and whereas the demons who are inside people need casting out, the principalities and powers demons, they must have their influence or their strongholds cast down. Remember, their influence, their strongholds, are the hold they have on people's thinking. Not a hold from the inside, doesn't mean that they're in people, all right, but the principalities and powers they control manipulate people by influencing their thoughts and their minds and their thinking from the outside. So therefore, our part in this, and this is what we're going to be looking at tonight, is okay, Paul says that our part as the church is that we must pull down their strongholds. We must demolish the influence that they have in certain situations. Now, if you go to 1 John chapter 5, uh, and we'll actually <coughs> see quite, quite specifically the area that we're going to be covering. You see here the, the two aspects, in fact, of our warfare. In, in 1 John 5 <coughs> and verse 14 and 15, <coughs> John says this, And this is the confidence which we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. Now go on down to verse 19, just a few verses later. He says, we know that we are of God, and the whole world is in the power of the evil one. So what John has been saying is our confidence is that if we ask the Lord for something that is according to his will, that's going to be done. But then he goes on to remind them that the whole world, everything there is, is actually under the control of the evil one, of Satan. Under the grip of the principalities and powers which are the push behind human affairs. So what we see here <clears throat> is that what God promises has to be taken from Satan. You see, verse 14 to 15 the assurance that if we pray according to God's will, what we pray will happen, it will occur. But the world lies in the power of the evil one, so therefore what God has promised us, in order for his will to be done, things have to be taken from out of Satan's power and control. And that's basically what this pulling down strongholds is all about. And it is done by prayer. Now we're going to see one or two other things that come into the picture, but basically this weapon that we have, the weapon of our warfare, well obviously it's the power of God himself. It's Father, it's Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit. But that that power is released by us through prayer. So basically the weapons of our warfare is prayer. Now what I want us to do is, is, is to turn our thinking now to the, the picture that the Old Testament gives us of this. Uh, I've said often before that if the, if the New Testament is the script, then the Old Testament is the movie. Um, if the New Testament is doctrine, then the Old Testament is that doctrine acted out in human history, pictured for us in certain events. And that there is uh, an overriding picture of spiritual warfare in the Old Testament, and it is of course Israel's taking of Canaan, of the promised land. Now, think of it like this. Israel, God's people, Israel, they started off in Egypt. In Egypt, they were 
under bondage, all right? And uh, they were kind of like ruled by Pharaoh, um, and Pharaoh was a picture of Satan. And uh, they had the taskmasters who drove them. They were in absolute bondage to the taskmasters, the slave drivers. And that's a picture of sin, because obviously we're slaves to our own sin. And so Egypt, Israel in Egypt, is a picture of being in the world. It's pre-salvation. It's what all of us are in our natural state. We're under the control of Pharaoh, Satan, the god of this world. Remember, Jesus said to unbelievers, you are of your father, the devil, all right? Um, and the taskmasters absolutely control our actions, i.e. our sinful natures dictate every step of the way to us. And when Israel was called out of Egypt, it was a picture of being born again. It was a picture of becoming a Christian, that through turning to Jesus, through turning to the Lord and being born again, that you're taken out from under that control and domination of Pharaoh and also the taskmasters. And so you come out of Egypt, exactly as Israel did across the Red Sea. Conversion, all right? Now, from Egypt, the world, where did they go next? They went through the wilderness. Now, what is the wilderness a picture of? The wilderness is a picture. The main thing about the wilderness is, is, is that they all died in it. <laughs> you see, when they, when they set off to Canaan, there are only literally about eight of them who actually left Israel, uh, Egypt, who actually got into Canaan. And of course, they all died in the wilderness because of their unbelief, you see. And it's a picture of God dealing with our sinful natures. It's sanctification. I refer you back uh, to the Salvation series. And that the wilderness is the picture of God having got us out of the world, Egypt, in the wilderness, God had to get Egypt out of Israel. Can you see? It's one thing for us to get born again. It's one thing for us to say we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into light, as Paul puts it. It's all very well for us to say, well, I'm born again. I've been taken, as it were, out of that world system, and now I'm a subject of God's kingdom. But the great problem then is that you may be out of the world, but the world is definitely not out of us. We're still full of it. And in fact, God can never get the world out of us. What he does, in the same way, he, he could get Israel out of Egypt. All right. But it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel, and he did it by them all dying. And it's a picture, of course, that the only victory over sin that there ever has been and ever will be is dying to ourselves and Jesus living through us. And the wilderness is a picture of sanctification, of the fact that you become a Christian, you come into God's kingdom, but then God has to deal with you and bring you into death to self, so that that sinful nature, the rebellion against God is brought under control, so that you really do then truly become a subject of the king, really living in obedience and faithfulness to him. So we've got Egypt, the world, okay, um, becoming a Christian, being born again, then the journey through the wilderness, the tough times of God's dealing, which ends in death, death to self, sanctification as it were, but then after that it was into Canaan into the promised land. And in the same way that Moses brought Israel through the death to self stage, you know, the law and going through the wilderness, God raised up another leader to replace Moses, Joshua, and Joshua is forever a picture of Jesus. In fact, Joshua, Yeshua, Joshua is the same name as Jesus. It's exactly the same name, all right? It's just that it's transliterated in a different way through various languages. And, uh, and of course, the point was Moses, who represented law, Moses, who represented what we do to please God. Moses could only lead people to death, all right, because the law kills us, haven't got a chance. But Joshua, Jesus, he led them into life. 
Because it's a picture that it's not what we do that brings us victory in the Christian life. It's the revelation that Jesus has died on the cross, that we died there with him, and that we are dead to sin. And it's coming into that revelation that we have a new life in Jesus. But the point was that Joshua went on to lead them into Canaan. Now, sometimes in hymns and poetry, and I suppose it's fair enough, you get the picture of Canaan being a picture of heaven, you know, sort of like beyond Jordan being a picture of heaven. Well, I mean, in the Bible, the promised land was no way a picture of heaven. For the simple reason, the promised land represented the most intense warfare. It wasn't a place of rest, not by any means. And uh, so the picture was that Egypt was the world, the wilderness was God dealing with the flesh, if you like, the sinful nature, but Canaan is a picture of spiritual warfare, the devil. There you have it, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, we're interested in Canaan, the taking of Canaan, because it represents for us the spiritual warfare that Paul and John talk about in the New Testament. And indeed, the taking of Canaan. Uh, one could do a whole series purely on the taking of Canaan, but one has to end somewhere, so we're not going to do that. But we're just going to dip into it and take out what we can. And of course, the point is that the taking of Canaan is the acting out in human history of the truth represented in the New Testament of our battle against the principalities and powers. And the point was that God had given Israel a land it was the promised land. It was theirs by right. God gave it to exactly the same way if you came in and I gave you a Mars bar and I said, uh, you know, here, have a Mars bar. If it, as, as long as it's my Mars bar and I own it, if I give it to you, it is yours by right. And in exactly the same way, God, who owned the promised land, because the earth is the laws and the fullness thereof, I mean, God owns the whole universe, he gave Israel a land. It was his to give. And it was theirs by right. But the point was, even though God had given it to them, it was inhabited by a load of nations that God had judged and wanted to be driven out. So can you see? In order for Israel to take what was theirs by right, they had to drive out an enemy who was occupying the land that God had given them. Now, go to Joshua, chapter 1, in the Old Testament. Joshua, chapter 1. And we'll just see the basic instructions that God gave Israel for how they were going to get their inheritance, as it were. Joshua, chapter 1, and we'll just read verse 2 and 3. Now, this is God speaking to Joshua. Joshua was going to lead them into the promised land. This is what God said to him. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land which I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I promised Moses. So, what God is saying to Joshua, look, you're going to get this land, by every, every square foot that you put your foot on is going to be yours. But in order to get to every square foot, you're going to have to drive the enemy off of it first. Now, notice this thing about every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon. Now then, does that not remind you uh, of the language of Jesus when he said, I have given you power to tread upon all the works of the devil? Can you see, putting your foot 
on Satan. And we saw as well in, in Ephesians the way that Paul says, look, Jesus has been raised up far above all authority and power. Everything is under his feet. Now that means Satan is. But then he says, because we're Christians, because we're born again, we're raised up with Jesus as well in the heavenly places. Now if Jesus is raised up in all authority, everything is under his feet, including Satan and the principalities and powers. Alright? Now if we are raised up with Jesus, that means the principalities and powers are also under our feet. Can you see the way that Jesus and the New Testament deliberately took this, this picture, this idea of putting your foot down and carried it over to speak about our warfare against the principalities and powers? It's because the taking of Canaan is there in the Old Testament purely to illustrate the spiritual warfare that we are you know, involved in. Now, also, look at in verse 2, this is interesting here. In verse 2 it says, um, You and all this people into the land which I am giving to them. Now, in verse 3, it says, uh, sorry, in, in verse, yeah, sorry, in verse 3, it says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Now, can you see, there are two ideas there. On the one hand, the Lord is saying to Joshua, I have already given it to you. But on the other hand, the Lord is saying to him, as you move forward, then I will be giving it to you. Can you see, there's a past tense and a present tense involved. And the reason is that Canaan was theirs by right. The deal was done. It belonged to them. Therefore, God had already given it to them. But in order for them to bring that inheritance into reality, they had to drive out the enemy first. So although the land had already been given to them, there was another sense in which they progressively had to be kept given it bit by bit. Can you see the difference? It's one thing to know that something is yours by right, and therefore it is yours. But it's quite another thing to embark on the process whereby it actually becomes yours in reality. So on the one hand, the promised land already belonged to Israel. God says, I have given it to you. But on the other hand, they had to go in and get it. So God was saying, I am giving it to you. In one sense, it's over and done, it's yours, the deal's complete, nothing more to be added. But on the other hand, you've got to go in there and get it. You've got to actualize and bring into reality the truth that it already belongs to you. And that meant pushing out, coming against and dealing with an enemy who was already on that land. So the point is, Canaan belonged to them already, but it still had to be taken. They had to fight for it, even though the victory was fully assured. All right. So think of it like this. Spiritual warfare is pictured in the Old Testament as the process of Israel actually coming into possession of what God had already given them. And it involved dispossessing an already occupying power, the Canaanites. Think of it like this. The Canaanites were squatters. Israel had to go in and serve the eviction order and kick them out. So the language of bailiffs there is actually quite helpful. So it's a question, what God had given to them and was theirs by right had to be taken by them from the enemy. It belonged to them, but they had to go and get it. It was theirs by right, but they had to go and take it away from an occupying force and to do so by warfare. Now, can you see the picture there in the Old Testament of the spiritual warfare we're up against. This world is in the control of the principalities and powers. 
whatever situation God moves us into, we have to take that situation away from the principalities and powers, from the fallen angels led by Satan, who are at the back of that situation are in control and who hold it, i.e. that situation is a satanic stronghold. That stronghold has to be broken. We have to take whatever the situation is out of Satan's power. Now that's the picture. Now I just want to pause here, alright, because we've got to deal now fairly quickly with a completely false teaching that is common today, uh, which is born of the fact that, that this thing about Israel being a picture of the church gets taken too far, alright. Now then, obviously it is true that the nation of Israel are clearly a picture of the New Testament church. There's no question about that. As we read of the story of God's people Israel, we are seeing a picture of the church and there's much that can be learned, alright. But we've also got to understand that whereas Israel was a picture of the church, it wasn't the church and there are profound differences between what happened in Old Testament times and what we are called to in spiritual warfare. You see, the thing is, be it at the time of Joshua, up to this present day even, Israel fought for, and, and is still fighting for, an actual geographic location, alright? Now for them, Whereas the satanic powers were behind the nations that they had to dispossess, and indeed behind the Canaanites, etc., etc., were satanic powers, there's no doubt about that. But the point was, for Israel, that warfare was with actual flesh and blood. They had to go in there with drawn swords and fight an actual physical battle. So although the nations they fought and came up against were a front for satanic power, the principalities and powers. Nevertheless, Israel, because it was fighting for a geographical location, Israel had to go in there and wage war, not just with the principalities and powers, but they did it by waging war with actual flesh and blood. And you'll remember from Ephesians 6 that flesh and blood is the very thing that Paul says our warfare isn't with. Alright? So the spiritual warfare that we are called to is not against people, whereas for Israel it was and indeed still is, alright? Now then, certainly, there are very few Christians around today who will take it, you know, who are saying, well, of course, the only way we're going to win this country for Jesus is to get our guns and go out there and shoot all the unbelievers. I mean, you do find some very extreme factions. I mean, you know, if you look back through Britain's history, I mean, the Crusades, you know, were all about that. But if you believe for one moment the people involved in the Crusades were Christians, then you don't understand what a Christian is and you don't understand history. That was politics. It was nothing to do with the kingdom of God. But, I mean, the point is, there aren't, you know, very few Christians around say, come on, we've got to take up arms, all right? But... What you do find today, a false teaching, is the idea that in exactly the same way that Israel was fighting for an actual geographical location, all right, what they are saying is that therefore the church of any one country, all right, be it England, be it France, be it India, whatever, this teaching is that the church of any one country can take over that country and make that country Christian so that virtually everyone becomes a Christian. So that you do get, you know, I mean, you know, those of you who have mixed out there in the charismatic scene, you'll have come across it. The idea that we're going to take England for Jesus, or that the Christians in France are going to take France 
for Jesus. And it's the idea almost that our spiritual warfare is going to result that virtually this landmass that we call Great Britain is going to kind of, you know, get converted and that we're going to take it over much in the same way that Israel took Canaan over. The only difference is that they did it with swords and we're going to do it with prayer, all right? And this teaching goes further that the task of the church and the role of the church is that the day is going to come, all right, and these people say it's not too far off, all right, the day is going to come when virtually the church has converted the world. And when the church has converted the world, and when the church has kind of made the world, you know, everyone's converted, because of course the church is going to be so powerful, and we're going to be so glorious, that this world won't be able to resist what we're offering. You know, and virtually everyone's going to become a Christian. And so, therefore, the kingdom of God will be established on this world by the church. And then, when the church has done that, won the whole world for Jesus. Oh, the church in England is one England, and the church in India is one India, and the church in Cambodia is one Cambodia, or whatever. When we've all won our countries, it all somehow synchronized, we'll have won the world for Jesus, and then the second coming will happen, and Jesus will come, and the church will present to Jesus the kingdom of God on earth, all right? Now, that is the teaching that you find today. The teaching that through spiritual warfare, we're going to take the world over for Jesus, or kind of more, you know, sort of like locally, the church in England is going to take England over for Jesus, and one day present Jesus with a converted uh, England. And I don't know how many of you uh, heard this, this kind of Evangelism 2000. Have you all heard of Evangelism 2000? It's very, very, very big at the moment. Um, and the idea being that, that on the year 2000, the church, as a birthday present to Jesus, is going to present to him a world which is more Christian than non-Christian. So it's the vision that by the year 2000, at least 51% of the population of the world is going to become Christians by then. And then presumably just a few more years mopping up and the other 49% will become Christians as well. Now, I mean, that vision it all sounds very good, doesn't it? Apart from the fact it's a load of squit. And apart from the fact that that vision was given to a guy called Tom Forrest, who is a Catholic. That needs taking into account as well. So what we've got to ask, all right, because this teaching is very, very strong, does the Bible teach that through spiritual warfare, because I'm going to be moving on to say what we can do in spiritual warfare, but what I've got to do just at this moment is combat the way that people today, that in the same way they say that Israel took a whole landmass, the church can take a whole landmass as well. Only we do it through prayer and evangelism, obviously not by using weaponry uh, physically. So we've got to ask ourselves, is the New Testament teaching consistent with that idea? Is the church going to, by spiritual warfare, virtually bring the world to Jesus, and when the whole world is converted, we're going to offer to Jesus the world? And that will be at the second coming and Jesus will come to reign because the church will have so cleaned the world up that Jesus will feel at home on the world and he can just step in and take over. That's the teaching. Now then, obviously, most of the teaching in the New Testament about our warfare against, spirit, uh, against principalities and powers comes from the Apostle Paul. So let's just see what Paul's outlook was in regards to this. Uh, go first of all to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. And the question we're asking... Worthy New Testament writers and Jesus himself anticipating a day when the whole world was converted and taken over by the Christians. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 4. All right. But understand this, that in the last days, technically the last days are from Pentecost right up until the final judgment. They are biblically the last days. We are in the last days. All right. 
Understand this, in the last days there will come times of stress. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, socialists, oh, no, sorry, uh, fierce, fierce hate, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding the form of religion but denying the power of that. So, you know, I mean, is, was Paul anticipating the day when nearly everyone was going to get converted? Uh, go to 2 Thessalonians. Also, Paul. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. And we'll start reading from verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed. This is obviously talking about the Antichrist. And the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by his appearing and his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be by the activity of Satan and with all power and pretended signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are to perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Hey, can you see in this the way that Satan and the principalities and powers influencing people's minds, blinding them to the truth? Therefore, God sends upon them a strong delusion to make them believe what is false, so that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, we've got to ask, is, is this Paul being optimistic about the fact that one day the church was going to get so glorious that the whole world would irresistibly become Christian? Quite the contrary. And in fact, concerning this thing, is the church going to hand to Jesus a converted world? Well, what does Paul teach? Paul teaches, in actual fact, that the day is going to be, you know, going to come, and it's going to be a day when the world is at optimum wickedness, when the church is going to be raptured out of the scene altogether. And then, as far as the world down here is concerned at this period of history, the role of the church will be over anyway. Because the church will be gone. Simple as that. Um, you know, and so therefore we've got to ask, the idea that the church, by spiritual warfare, is going to present to Jesus a converted world, a Christian world, certainly doesn't tie in with the teaching of Paul, does it? How about Peter? Let's see what Peter's out. Well, perhaps Peter was a bit more optimistic. Perhaps Paul was on an off day when he wrote those epistles, I don't know. How about Peter? 2 Peter, chapter 3. Chapter 3, and we'll read verse 3, 3 to 4. First of all, you must understand this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own passions. <laughs> well, what can you say? following their own passions and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago and an earth fall, blah, blah, blah. So what is Peter's outlook? Is it that the world is going to get more, you know, all going to bow down and we're going to become Christians? Quite the contrary. And Peter, like Paul, envisaged that the more church history went on, in actual fact, the worse humankind was going to get. Um, you know, hardly taking the world over for Jesus, is it? Peter had no expectation of doing that. How about Jesus himself? How about Jesus? What did Jesus think about this? Go to Matthew 24. Remember the question we're asking, does the New Testament paint the picture for us 
that the church is going to take the world over for Jesus in the same way that Israel took Canaan over. All right, that's the question we're asking. Matthew 24, and we'll read from verse 4. Uh, right, Jesus, this was, um, this was the disciples there saying, Lord, when is the kingdom going to be established? When are you going to come again? Blah, blah, blah. And Jesus answered them, Take heed that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all this is but the beginning of the sufferings. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. So when you see the desolating sacrilege spoken of by the prophet Daniel, see he's talking about the great tribulation here, isn't it? We know that, that happens after the rapture. Uh, you know, so let him who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to take his mantle. And alas, for those who are with child in those days, pray that your flight might not be in winter on a Sabbath, blah, blah, blah. Uh, let's go down into verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn that they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now then, putting together what we've read from Paul, what we've read from Peter, and what we've read from Jesus, are they painting the picture that through spiritual warfare, the church is going to claim this whole world for Jesus? And that when it's got everyone converted, and when the whole world is running and according, you know, sort of uh, organising itself according to the Bible, that then it will be so Christian that then Jesus will come back and take over because the world is all following him. I mean, quite the contrary, isn't it? I mean, in fact, the Bible teacher has already said the church one day is going to be raptured anyway. Then you get the Great Tribulation. Now, what will happen then, okay, is that Jesus will rule on the earth and establish his kingdom, having returned when Israel as a nation cries out to him and asks him to. The second coming is going to be heralded by Israel repenting, accepting Jesus as Messiah and crying out to him to come to them and establish his rule. That is going to be the circumstances of the second coming. And in the meantime, the world is in a state of virtual destruction. And the vast majority of people are busying themselves following the Antichrist, killing Christians and killing Jews because they hate them so much. So that is the scenario of the second coming. Certainly not the church bringing the whole world to Jesus. And then uh, when the world is such a lovely place that we virtually restore paradise on earth, then Jesus will come. So, I mean, that particular, you know, sort of teaching is, is way out and it goes right against what the Bible teaches. So what we're seeing, seeing is, look, we can't, be it by spiritual warfare or anything else, just take whole localities over for Jesus. Uh, we can't do what Israel did. What Israel did in the Old Testament is a picture of spiritual warfare, not actual spiritual warfare itself as it relates to the church. And of course the point is that our spiritual warfare 
it counters what Satan is doing in regards to the human race. It doesn't take people's free will away. You see, when Israel invaded Canaan, they took people's free will away because they killed them, and God had authorized them to do that. But our spiritual warfare is not in any way the same. Our spiritual warfare is counteracting the deception and the control and the manipulation over people's minds that Satan has. But we do not have any control whatsoever over people's free will. And the truth is, most people don't want to follow Jesus. They never have wanted to, they never will want to. And Jesus himself said, when he was talking about the broad road that leads to destruction, i.e. not believing on Jesus, and the narrow road, believing on Jesus, Jesus said of the narrow road, few there be that find it. Jesus never expected to see the world converted. He knew full well that the number of Christians was always going to be minority. All right. Now, do you remember last time what we said about the blindness that Satan has put over people's minds in regards to the truth of the gospel? See, one of the reasons that a lot of evangelism is ineffective is because the people are absolutely blind to it. You might as well hold a rose in front of a blind man and tell him how beautiful it is. Let's just see that. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We, we saw this a couple of talks ago, but we'll go back to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, verse 3 and 4. And, uh, and Paul says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. So what we've got is that the world is blinded. Unbelievers are incapable of understanding the truth of the gospel. They're incapable of being touched by it for the simple reason that Satan has blinded them. There's, as it were, a veil over their minds. Uh, go back into, ver into chapter 3 the previous chapter, it's just read verse, verse 14. Here he's talking about Israel, he says, but their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds, but when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, you see, the point is, what we can do in regards to unbelievers that we're praying for, is that we can counter the effect of that blindness that Satan has put over them. That we can use our authority to remove that veil, to remove that blindness. But what our spiritual warfare does is simply this. It brings them to a situation where they can now understand where they can now decide, am I going to repent of my sins? Am I going to follow Jesus, who is here, the Son of God, calling me to follow him? Our spiritual warfare can remove the blindness so that they can see the truth. But what our spiritual warfare cannot do is have any effect whatsoever on whether or not they're going to become Christians. Because the decision they make will be purely up to them. And the vast majority of people, even though, because we've prayed for them, because if we like, we've done spiritual warfare for them, yeah, they'll be touched, they'll see the truth, but most of them are going to say no anyway, you see. So the point is that spiritual warfare can neutralise, can negate, counter the effect, the influence that Satan is having in various situations. But what it cannot do is touch people's free will. That forever is up to them. Now here's the point, go back, 
go back to 1 John, chapter 5, where we started off. One John chapter five, and we'll read verse fourteen and fifteen again. We saw this is the confidence which we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of Him. Now, can you see the point there? There, there are, you can read these, these books on prayer and claiming things, and they say, look, ask anything in the name of Jesus. Ask whatever you will. And we've seen that to pray in the name of Jesus means to pray under His authority. So, you're only praying in the name of Jesus when you're actually praying what He Himself has revealed and wants. Now, the point is, we can do spiritual warfare in regards to God's will because the point is that God knows in advance who's going to follow him, who isn't. He already knows the outcome. So, that is why we only have authority over the principalities and powers to the extent that we are praying within God's will. But we cannot affect other people's free will. God knows what they're going to do. That is why the Lord can lead us and we can pray with confidence concerning certain people, but only because the Lord knows in advance that they are going to be saved. Can you see the point? So we mustn't in any way at all think that, 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 that doing spiritual warfare, praying in regards to certain situations, is going to change people's free will. It isn't. But what it is going to do is it's going to remove Satan's influence so that people are then free to decide for themselves. And so the point is that we need to be open in regards to whatever situations we're in to receive from God what his will is and then pray accordingly. It doesn't matter if we get things wrong and end up praying out of God's will. Because if you pray for something out of God's will, it won't happen anyway, so no big deal. But can you see the point? Our authority in this spiritual warfare is only to the extent that we're praying according to God's will. Five, we're... Once we've established what God's will is in regards to certain things, then the point is we can extract that from Satan. We can take it from him. Can you see what I mean? As soon as you know in a situation what God is doing and how God is leading you to pray, when you know what God's will is in that situation, then spiritual warfare will break Satan's power and bring about what it is that you're praying for. Uh, just go to Deuteronomy 29. There's um, a verse here that is um, quite, quite astounding, really. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. And it says this, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Now, can you see that? If God reveals something to you, then with that revelation will come the knowing, Hey, yeah, that's mine. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to believe, and I'm going to wait until that has become a reality. Do you see the point? What God reveals to us as being his will, we pray into being, knowing that it is our prayers which are breaking the hold that Satan has on that situation.
Let's let's go back uh, to the promised land picture in the Old Testament and get a you know sort of this a bit more clear in our minds to give you the picture. Go to Joshua chapter six this time, and what we're interested here is is the battle for Jericho. Joshua chapter six. I think we'll we'll read the um we'll read virtually the whole story. All right, chapter six. All right, we'll, we'll start from a. Uh, from verse 1. Now the important thing about Jericho is that it was the first battle that they had with the enemy when they went into the promised land. So the point was that Jericho, this city, Jericho, belonged to them. Because God had given them the entire land of Canaan. So Jericho belonged to them. God had revealed to them that he wanted them to have Jericho. Alright? But what was the problem? Well the problem was that Jericho was inhabited by Jerichoites or whatever they were called. Alright? So that's to be dealt with. Now let's read from verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up from within and from without because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given into your hand Jericho with its king and mighty men of valour. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And as Joshua commanded, the seven priests, blah, 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 went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or let your voice be heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout. Then so you shout. So he calls the Ark of the Lord to compass the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. So what they're doing is they're walking around once a day for six days without any noise. You know, they're, they're not allowed to talk or shout. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests bearing the seven trumpets, blah, 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 <laughs> went before, and the rear guard came after the Ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, blah, blah, blah. So they did for six days. Now, on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, the Lord said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has... Sorry, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now just go down into verse 20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the shout of the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet, the people raised a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Then they utterly destroyed all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and asses, with the edge of the sword. Now, here's the point. Jericho here represents what has been promised by God, i.e. the spoils. Canaan had been given into Israel's hand. God said, look, there it is, it's yours. Everything on there, all the buildings, all the money, all the wealth, all the orchards, you name it, all the gold mines, it's all yours. And I want you to have it, and I've given it to you. But in order for them to get that, they had to deal with the inhabitants. They had to, to kind of wage war against the people. Now the point is, 
with Jericho, once they got into the city, the people were no problem because God was fighting for Israel. And once they got in there, all the, the people could be killed and all the spoils of Jericho, what had been promised them, would be theirs. All right. So the problem is that there's a wall in the way because Jericho was a walled city. And the cities in those days, because there were always marauding armies going around, you, the city was surrounded by a massive wall. And when the gates were shut, the city was virtually impregnable. If an army got in, they might be able to beat you up very easily, but if they couldn't get in, they were onto a non-starter. So the cities have these massive walls. Now, the point is, Israel wants Jericho. And God has promised them Jericho. Everything in Jericho belonged to them. All they had to do was get in, and it was done. But the problem was, there was a holding power that prevented them getting anywhere near it. And it was the walls. Can you see? The walls were in the way. There was something which was blocking them. There was something which was preventing them going in and getting what God had promised them. There was a stronghold there. So that there's something stood between them and what God promised them. Now, the thing is, the wall of Jericho is a picture in the Old Testament of Satan's hold on whatever it is God has promised in any one situation. There you've got what God has promised. Here's us wanting it, but there's something in the way. The wall of Jericho is preventing you getting near, all right? Now, do you remember what Jesus said about his death? That in his death, he said, bind the strong man and plunder his goods. Israel couldn't plunder the goods of Jericho because there was a wall in the way. And that wall represented Satan's hold. All right. So the plundering of the goods, the actual taking of Jericho, that involved action by God's people. But here's the point. In order to get the wall down, the only thing they were allowed to do was walk round and round and round it in silence. Now, in the Christian life, much of it is down to us, i.e., you know, there's our bit. All right. But when it came to the wall of Jericho, Israel's bit were getting in the wall, beating up the Jerichoites, all right, and then taking all the goods. That was their bit. But as long as the wall was there, they couldn't do their bit. There was a bit that only God could do himself. And that bit was dealing with the satanic stronghold that was preventing God's people releasing to themselves what God had promised them. All right. And so, therefore, all they could do was walk round and round in silence and then, at the right moment, shout, all right? The shout of faith, if you like. Now, can you see the picture that is emerging? Whether it's us as individuals, us in the as a church, or whether it's the, you know, the corporate church in Great Britain, the point is, whatever God has promised, whatever spoils it is God is leading us towards, the truth of the matter is, all those things are in Satan's power, because the world lies in the evil one. That's what John said in 1 John 5, wasn't it? That the world is under the control of the evil one. And before you can actually get whatever it is that God has promised, then that is where spiritual warfare comes in. Because Satan's hold on that situation must be broken first. And until it's broken, there ain't nothing going to happen. Until the walls of Jericho came down, Israel was not going to have a fight with the Jerichoites and plunder their goods, were they? They could do nothing. They were absolutely, you know, stymied by the walls. 
And it was only God who could bring the walls down. Now, that is why spiritual warfare, the pulling down of the strongholds that Satan has in whatever situation it is that we're involved in, or whatever situations we're involved with, that is why spiritual warfare is prayer. Because there's nothing we can do about it. Our bit is the praying. And it's the praying that releases God's power into that situation. And then the walls come down. Go to Matthew 17, something that, that, that Jesus said. Matthew chapter 17. And uh, find verse 20. We looked at this in an earlier study. And, uh, you know, this was the uh, evil spirit that the disciples couldn't cast out. It just didn't take any notice of them. And uh, sort of Jesus rebuked them for it. And uh, we went into all the details of that in an earlier study. But uh, look what Jesus says in verse 20. He said to them, well, they said, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus said, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move hence to yonder place, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, I mean, on the basis of this verse, I mean, one has read some extraordinary things in Christian books, and they say, well, look, you know, if Jesus has said that we can actually move mountains, you know, even Everest can't remain before us, and they, they go off into all these quite ridiculous things that they then say, well, you know, we're going to start praying for. Uh, if you go to Zechariah 4, I'll show you how to understand this thing that Jesus is saying here, because he's referring to a picture in the Old Testament, that the disciples would have known exactly what he was talking about. And he weren't talking about moving literal mountains, not in the slightest. Uh, Zechariah, which is uh, towards the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah, I've lost Zechariah now, hang on, help. Right, Zechariah chapter 4, and let's just read verse 6. Zechariah chapter 6, read from verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord. Zechariah 4, yeah, sorry, Zechariah chapter 4, start from verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, who was the king of Israel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace to it, grace to it. Now, here we have a message from God to one of the kings of Israel. A king who was facing obstacles that were preventing Israel from coming into everything that God had for them at that time. And the obstacles, which were obviously satanic, because ultimately every obstacle is satanic, who is it who puts obstacles in the way of us following the Lord? It's Satan, the principalities and powers. And these obstacles here are likened to a mountain. And the message is for Zerubbabel to realise that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, i.e. the only power that counts is the Lord himself. Alright, the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, if Zerubbabel keeps his eyes on the Lord, if, 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 if he just keeps believing that God is going to fulfil what it is he's promised him, then what it's saying is that Zerubbabel would, as it were, plough down this mountain, i.e. the obstacles, just like Goliath. Goliath represented a satanic stronghold, didn't he? And little David, because he was looking at the Lord rather than, you know, sort of Goliath, little David just mowed him out of the way in the power of the Lord. It's a picture of satanic obstacles being removed. And that's why Jesus said about your say to this mountain, you know, be, be cast into the sea. Because again, it's talking about the fact 
that in whatever situation it is we move into, Satan is going to be hindering. And whatever it is the Lord wants to be giving us, it belongs to Satan. Because the world lies in the evil one. Now, the walls of Jericho forever stand between us and the spoils of what God has promised us. Therefore, the walls have to be dealt with. But only God can bring the walls down. The only thing for us to do is to remain silent, i.e. prayer. It is prayer in regards to the situation which breaks Satan's hold, which removes the walls of Jericho, so you can then actually move into the situation and receive whatever it is that God has promised. And can you picture it? The Israelites walked marching round for seven days and they weren't allowed to say a word, all right? I mean, it probably made them think they were wasting their time. It made them realise that when it comes to these walls, there was nothing they could do. They felt defenceless, they felt hopeless, absolutely weak and powerless in the face of the situation. And what that walking around the walls in silence for seven days did to them, it made them realise that the battle is the Lord's or the battle is not going to get fought. you see what I mean? They weren't in any way dependent on themselves. They knew that only God could deal with the walls. And therefore they looked to the Lord. And when the right time came, they shouted, as it were, with a shout of faith. Because remember, part of our spiritual warfare is having faith for the outcome. According to your faith be it unto you. That's part of it. And that is how it is that we combat, that we break the strongholds of Satan in whatever situations it is that we're concerned with. Through prayer and by faith. Using our authority against Satan in prayer. And the answer is quite... I mean, I'll bet when they started off walking around those walls of Jericho, probably day one they were pretty cocky. Oh, any minute the Lord's going to do it, you know. But I reckon as day three and four came, I reckon they, they didn't have much faith at all. I mean, is this ever going to happen? All right. But they kept walking around until they came into faith. And so what that says is in regards to situations, pray believing. If you have reason to believe that God has promised you something, and after all, there's enough His promises just in His Word that isn't in doubt, isn't it? Pray believing, but if you're not believing, and if you're doubting, then keep praying until you are believing. Can you see what I mean? Because whatever you pray for, as you come up against that satanic stronghold, Satan's going to throw unbelief at you, he's going to throw despair at you. He knows the only way he can save himself in that situation is to stop you praying. Because if you don't pray, the stronghold won't be broken. Because the way we break it is by prayer. If the stronghold isn't broken, then what God has promised isn't going to be released. So that is why Satan doesn't want us to pray. That is why Satan wants us full of doubt. That is why Satan wants us giving up so easily when it comes to prayer. Go back to Daniel chapter 10. Now, we did Daniel chapter 10 in great detail a few weeks ago, but there's just one bit of it that I just want to emphasise again. Daniel chapter 10. And remember the, you know, what's happening here, that Daniel has uh, been praying for prophetic revelation about the future of Israel. And uh, he was praying and fasting for 21 days, wasn't he? And, uh, and what happened was that this angel appears and brings to him the information that he's been praying for, i.e. Daniel knows that God has promised him more info, so he's praying for it. He's praying for it, all right? And then after three weeks, the, you know, the goody angel appears. And, uh, and tells him, now let's see actually in verse, um, uh, right, yeah, in verse 12. 
Uh, the angel said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to my help, blah, blah, blah. Now, what happened was that the answer, if you like, to, to Daniel's prayer was dispatched by the Lord in heaven the first day he prayed it. But for 21 days, there was a satanic stronghold that was still controlling the situation. So the answer was not able to materialise because of Satan's interference, Satan's control in that situation. And it took, in that example, 21 days for the angel to actually get through. For 21 days, uh, a demon principality was able to prevent that prayer being answered. But here's the point. Eventually, the angels prevailed over the demon, all right? And after 21 days, the angel got to Daniel. But the point is, the goody angels prevailed over the baddy angels and the stronghold was broken because Daniel kept praying. Can you see the point? If Daniel had given up after a week, he would have never got what he was praying for and we would never have had Daniel chapter 10 to the end of the book. We'd have only had Daniel chapter 9, which would have rendered the rest of the Bible nonsensical. Because Daniel chapter 10 onwards contains some of the most important bits of the jigsaw puzzle of the last days. So, therefore, Satan's stronghold was overcome because Daniel kept praying. And if Daniel hadn't have kept praying, Satan would have won that round. Now, we're in the position of a boxing match with Satan. The final knockout is assured, no question. And a knockout overrides everything. But he can win rounds on points. You see what I mean? So we need to make sure that we're winning the rounds on points. And one of the ways we do that is, is, is realising that it is prayer that breaks the hold that Satan has in the situations that we're praying for. Now, think about it. That is incredible. There are things which God wants to happen, but which will not happen unless we pray. If we don't pray, they won't happen. If we do pray, they will. That's amazing. And one of the reasons for that is, Satan's hold in situations must be broken. But it is broken by prayer. So if we're not praying, the mountains, as it were, ain't going anywhere, because it's prayer that deals with them. And if the mountains don't go, if the walls of Jericho don't fall down, Israel doesn't get Jericho, and God's will is not done in that circumstance. So what we're seeing in regards to prayer, now here's a great, this is a real, real old sort of BJ phrase this is, that prayer has a triangular mode of operation, alright? There is triangularity in prayer. Let me explain that. It's vital to understand it. Prayer has three aspects. And it's only when you understand all three aspects that your praying will become meaningful to you. Prayer is obviously to the Lord. And it is obviously for something or for someone, alright? But it is also against Satan and his holding power. Now, can you see what I mean? We've established praying out of God's will, nothing's going to happen anyway, because God doesn't answer prayer against his will. But the point is that prayer, when God's you know, will has been revealed in a situation or whatever, then the praying is to the Lord, it's for the situation, but it must also be against the principalities and powers and their holding power. I.e., the wall of Jericho is the initial target. Unless you get the wall of Jericho down, nothing's going to happen. And the reason it's prayer is because only God can bring the wall of Jericho around.
down. This is why, I mean, say in regards to um, unbelievers, I mean, say you've got a friend who's a non-Christian, and some Christians have this experience, and they keep witnessing away, they go on and on and on and on, maybe for years, maybe for years, and they get nowhere. You know, the non-Christian is not touched. And then maybe they realise prayer, and the stronghold is broken, and then suddenly the whole thing changes. Now, the person might not become a Christian, but suddenly your witnessing is getting through. And they're reacting, they're responding, they're not sitting on the fence anymore, and it's one way or the other. That's because the satanic stronghold has been broken. Can you see what I mean? Without the walls of Jericho coming down, we're going to get absolutely nowhere. All right. Now, there are two other things as well in regards to the taking of Jericho. Because when they were marching round and round, you know, as, as it were, that was the prayer that was going to bring the walls of Jericho down. That was the prayer against Satan, as it were. All right? Um, but the priests led this weird procession with two things, all right? First of all, with trumpets. There were trumpeters out front. And the other thing out front was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is important because other aspects of our spiritual warfare. Because some people, they think spiritual warfare is just coming against Satan in prayer, all right? No, it's more than that. There are certain circumstances where you can come against Satan in prayer till the cows come home. For instance, if you're not in fellowship with God. Simple as that. We saw this, didn't we? We only have authority over the demon powers to the extent that we are under the authority of Jesus. So if we're not under his authority, don't expect Satan to be under yours, because he won't. He'll laugh in your face, all right? But the two things, there were the trumpets and there was the Ark of the Covenant. Now the trumpets. What do, the, what do trumpets represent? Well, praise him on the trumpet, the soldier in heart, isn't it? Yeah. It's praise, isn't it? Praise. So there you've got it that one part of spiritual warfare is praise and worship. And it's just the fact Satan cannot stand. He hates the Lord being worshipped because it reminds him of how great the Lord is. It reminds him of his utter defeat at the hands of the Lord. So praise is a part of it. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, what was that? Well, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? It was the commandments, the Ten Commandments, that God had written with his own finger on the tablets of stone. So one of the things in the Ark was the written word of God. The written word of God. And that two, these two things represent praise and worship, which should, after all, undergird our lives. <coughs> undergird our lives. Um, I said a while ago, didn't I, did three studies ago, it's why sometimes in worship it can be a bit sort of bleh, can't it? Well, I mean, that, that's because, you know, the old principalities and powers, they're chucking cold water. But if, if you keep going really faithfully, there'll suddenly be a change, can't they? Because the very praise and worship has broken their power, and so the atmosphere changes. Um, you know, so, so, so you've got praise, but also obedience to the written word of God, the Bible. Now, those two things must also be in place. It's no use just being, oh, we come against you, Satan, and we come against you, and we come against you, blah, 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 all over the place. There needs to be worship, and there needs to be a life of obedience and faithfulness to God's written word. Just go to Psalm 149. Uh, Psalm 149 is, a, is, again, we're back to this picture of spiritual warfare. Uh, there's actually a chorus we sing quite frequently, which is basically Psalm 149 put to music. And uh, we got... Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the faithful. 
Let Israel be glad in his maker, let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with timbrel and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people, he adorns the humble with victory. Let the faithful exult in glory, let them sing for joy on their couches. Let the high praises of God be in their throats, shouts of praise, and two-edged sword in their hands. Now what's the two-edged sword? The word of God, Hebrews tells us that to wreak vengeance on the nations, chastisements on the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the written judgment. And there you have it. There you have it, that through the church, the principalities and powers are being dealt with and judged through the prayers, the spiritual warfare of the church. And it's only as kings and nobles are bound by spiritual warfare, that the principalities and powers lose their influence in situations so that people are free to decide. Um, and, and that situations are released, completely released. And that this is what pulling down strongholds is all about. Prayer, praise, and a life of obedience to the Word of God in regards to whatever. And the point is that then the hold of the principalities and powers is broken and their binding effect is replaced by the power of the Holy Spirit. The atmosphere, do you remember I said about the, you change the spiritual warfare is changing the atmosphere of situations? Because that's where the demon powers are, in the atmosphere. And that spiritual warfare, prayer, praise, living in obedience to God, changes the atmosphere of whatever situation it is we are praying into and replaces that hold of the devil and the principalities and powers replaces it with the power of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, Satan's hold is broken and the power of God's Spirit is released into that situation. Now, obviously, in regards to this, we must be led by the Lord in regards to the specifics. The prayer must be in accordance with God's will. But that's just part of our day-to-day -day Christian lives, isn't it? As the Lord leads us, as we spend time in prayer, discerning his will. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's very, very difficult. In time, we will do a thing about guidance, although that won't be for quite a long time. But obviously, the Lord must lead us in regards to the specifics. What we mustn't fall into is all this silly nonsense that people, you know, sort of like this name it and claim it movement. You know, sort of like the teaching, well, you know, the world lies in the evil one. We, all right, I need a new car. Right, I'll get, I'm taking my new car from Satan and I'm just going to claim it and I'm going to do spiritual warfare and my new Mercedes is going to turn up at the front door. That's rubbish. That's not spiritual warfare. That's greed. And it's also kidding yourself. The praying must be in accordance with God's will. One of the things you'll notice, I mean, if you go onto any front line or if you, you know, were a reporter in any war and interviewed a soldier on a mission, why is that soldier on that mission? Because his superior officer has sent him there. And it's the same with us. It's no use going into a situation or praying about things that God has not authorised you to pray about. You know, oh, right, I've decided, yeah, I've de I, I need a mansion. Yeah, God's called me to a ministry. Yeah, I need a mansion. I'm going to pray. I'm going to take a mansion from Satan and this wicked world system. The earth is the Lord's. I'll have that mansion. I mean, that is crazy. This can only be in regards to what we're authorised for. Um, you know, as I say, you could, some Christians, they, you know, they literally believe that they're going to spiritual warfare everyone in England to become Christians. Well, you wait wasting your time. We're not authorised to do that. Obviously, the Lord has got to lead us in regards to the specifics, but what we have got to know is that whatever situations we're dealing with, alright, that satanic hold must be broken through spiritual warfare, but it's done through prayer. 
And just bearing in mind that intercession, i.e. praying for things or situations, realise that part of the element of that prayer is that it's the praying that is pushing back Satan's hold. So it's quite legitimate when praying for situations, every now and then direct those prayers directly at the principalities and powers. You know, give them a blast. It doesn't matter if you don't, they're feeling the impact of your praying, regardless of what words you're using. But we need to realise this, that prayer is to the Lord, for something or a situation, and against the principalities and powers. And it's like examples, I mean, obviously we've seen unbelievers, you know, that the, the veil is removed from their eyes. Strongholds of sin in our own lives. Remember, the power of principalities and powers is manipulation and control through our minds. I'm not now talking about demons inside of us, but, the you know, manipulation, control, temptation. So, there's an element of spiritual warfare in regards to strongholds of sin in our lives. Now, I'm not saying we're going to start, you know, every, right, it's your turn, what's the stronghold, brother, we'll pray against it. This is, this is for us in our individual walk with the Lord. You know, not, not suddenly, right, I want everyone to come forward and I'll minister to you. No, it's not like that. But to give you a, an idea of the areas we're talking about here, uh, that which lacks in us as a church. You know, there, there's something, spiritual warfare. Uh, we need to do spiritual warfare that God's power is released in this area. Now, we're not stupid enough to say, right, well, we're going to claim Chigwell for Jesus, i.e. that everyone in Chigwell is going to become Christians. But one prayer we must pray is that this area comes under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's legitimate. On the day of Pentecost, Jerusalem, a city, was convicted of sin. The whole city wasn't converted, by any means, but the whole city was convicted of sin. We need to pray against the principalities and powers in the area, that God's power of conviction can be released. Healings and miracles, not doing too well on this, are we? Why the strongholds of unbelief in our hearts? Not demons in our hearts, no, but the stronghold of unbelief in our hearts is that power, that influence that the principalities and powers exert. You know what it is to pray for someone to be healed. What is it that rises up inside of you? They're not going to be healed. Now, it's not a demon rising up inside of us, but it is the manipulating control of principalities and powers. Can you see? Manipulating our unbelief. So that rather than, rather than, than being able to turn to the Lord and expecting it, we're just eaten up by the doubt and the unbelief of our sinful natures. Now, there, that's something for spiritual warfare. We need to look to the Lord, that as we grow in the Lord, we're released. That we're released, and there's a definite element of praying against Satan. Jobs. Jobs. I mean, if a believer needs a job, um, you know, I mean... Satan doesn't want believers to work. I mean, the Bible says, if a man shall not work, neither shall he eat. Satan doesn't want believers to work. And Satan is controlling that system out there. Can you see? So in regards to that, yeah, spiritual warfare. You know, that that job will turn up. That job will be released. That'll happen. Satan is blocking it. Finances, often. I'm not talking about get rich. I'm not talking about get rich. Anything like that. But there are times when finances are needed and Satan can be holding them back. There are times, there are times when God will actually put you through poverty. You know, I mean, that can be good for us, not everyone, but sometimes there can be a real lack of money precisely because God's doing that. He's making sure you're not getting much money because he wants to do a work in you. But there can be other times when, you know, real financial hardship comes and it can be discerned to be, hey, this is Satan. So, spiritual warfare, because Satan controls the money system in the world. He can manipulate your finances. He can manipulate your finances and that's, that's where we need discernment, isn't it? Um... National affairs, our, our country, you know, I mean, there's a general election coming up, you know, that, that needs a bit of spiritual warfare. I mean, you know, the principalities and powers are, are manipulating and controlling our nations. Uh, our nation, through the prayers of the church, their hold can be cut back. Um, international affairs, 
global affairs. Can you see the whole gamut? Every time we pray for Israel, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're praying against the principalities and powers that are trying to get Israel off the map. So, can you see the point that with spiritual warfare, what we're talking about is that whatever it is God has revealed that he wants to happen, we've got to pray that into being. But part of the praying it into being is the demolishing the walls of Jericho, which are preventing it becoming actual. Whatever it is God has promised you, whatever it is you know you've got coming from the Lord, Satan is holding it back. Spiritual warfare is needed so that his hold over it is broken. When Satan's hold over it is broken, and it may take time, it may take a lot of time, a lot of praying, maybe over months, maybe over years, but when that hold is broken, then whatever that situation is, it will be released into your hands, you know, according to whatever it is God has promised you. Um, but I do just want to chuck in that I don't want anyone to be silly about this. This isn't talking about us having our own wishful thinking and silly ideas and then convincing ourselves if we pray enough and if we do enough warfare, then it will be released. This is concerning things that God has promised us in his word and specific situations where we are reasonably sure as to what God's will is because that... Uh, that guidance has been tested thoroughly and by other people. So, I mean, I don't want to give out some kind of mandate that I'm saying, right, decide what you want and then do spiritual warfare for it. That's not what we're talking about at all. But it's basically this. What God has revealed to you is yours. Anything that God has revealed to you in your spirit for you, it's yours. Do spiritual warfare for it. Pray and don't give up until you've got it. And know, in the meantime, all right, that the reason that you haven't got it is because Satan is holding it off. So keep going until his hold is broken. Now, I just want to put a postscript on this one. And it's purely to say that we've talked about Jericho, you know, and the marching around the walls, etc., etc. And I just want to say, one of the things really popular today are the marches for Jesus. And I just want to say something about them here, because, again, it's this kind of teaching that we've covered that they're based on. You know, like the, the marching round Jericho, and so, you know, like the marches for Jesus, you march round London against the principalities and powers and take London for the Lord, and you march round Birmingham and, and, and villages and towns or whatever, okay. Now, <clears throat> what I want to say is that if you go through the New Testament, you will not find anything of that nature in the slightest, all right. And uh, the real problem, the real problem with things like marches for Jesus is that because they're an ecumenical thing, as soon as you take part in them, you're aligning yourself and you're associating yourself with every false doctrine going, all right? Because, of course, the ecumenical movement out there and all this let's come together is saying, forget about what you believe, you know, bury the word of God, you know, getting together is more important than sticking up for what the Lord has revealed in his word, all right? So basically, you know, anything short of the fact that they make sure that you're actually born again, but anything short of that, it don't matter what you believe, it don't matter what you do, all right? So therefore, by definition, you're coming together with this kind of lowest common denominator for getting together and, and all the false teaching. I mean, there was a guy who used to come here, this fellowship, years ago, he didn't make it, uh, but someone else in this fellowship, this was a few years ago, they went on one of these marches for Jesus. And it was so funny because they saw this other guy from the fellowship. They bumped in him and he's marching along with this big, big, big banner, all right? And on the banner it said, Catholics for Jesus. 
and I think the other person thought, oh, oh, I shouldn't be here. You know, can you see what I mean? Now, the whole point is that the marches for Jesus, what they're supposed to be is marching and breaking the power of the principalities and powers over cities and towns, all right? But in order to take part in it, you've got to align yourself with loads and loads of false doctrine. Now, the thing is, false doctrine is itself a product of the principalities and powers. So that, that is why, to me, there's no logic in it at all. How can the marches for Jesus be being effective in countering what the principalities and powers are doing when the teaching that they represent has actually come from the principalities and powers and not from the Word of God? It's absolutely nonsensical, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's virtually going along with Satan uh, in order to fight Satan. I mean, it's ridiculous, absolutely crazy. I mean, obviously, anyone here, are, you know, free to go. We don't bar anyone from them. You know, if you hear of one, you know, go along and have a look, see what you think. But uh, I just wanted to bring the marches for Jesus because it is specifically in regards to this aspect of teaching that they have their rationale. And if you go and talk to Christians on them, they'll, you know, about this marching round Jericho and the principalities and powers, blah, blah, blah. So I just wanted to, to cover that here. Right, now, now next, we're basically at the end now of this, but next time, what we're going to do is, is we're going to have a summing up talk. And what I'm going to do is just put a, a very, a thumbnail sketch of everything that we've covered so that we can have one talk that is going to put the whole picture together and remind us of all the various aspects of this that we've covered uh, in, the, in the previous talks. So that will be next time kind of a concluding talk.